0: Thank you, Linford, for for the prayer. Appreciate that. And it's good to have you back, you and Rachel and Martha, and also your family. Leighton, we're excited for you. Um, I don't know if I should say this or not, but uh, he gave me the inside scoop ahead of you. So that was interesting to watch that process. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to uh greet you this morning in Christ's name and uh we want to come back to the series on the family. And uh, this morning we want to shift our focus to the uh relationship between parents and and children. And uh maybe not so much this morning on that on on that relationship as much as uh, how it pertains to the vision that a parent should have And uh, I've entitled it parental vision First and second things And it might not make sense to you now But hopefully by the time we're finished You'll understand where we're going with that I'm going to have you stand for the reading of the word And uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 <clears throat> a Very very familiar passage of scripture I'm sure For you um, where we wanted to base our text, and, and the, the, there's going to be, uh, this is the first part, uh, the next time I want to then expound further on this text as well. So I'm sort of just laying the groundwork today. But starting to read in verse 1, chapter 6, says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for, that, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And I want to turn back to Proverbs chapter 22. There's a verse here that has... uh, caused a lot of questions probably, and a lot of uh, maybe disillusionment even to some degree. But if we want to, uh, to wrestle with this verse here in Proverbs 22, verse 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. Let's pray. Father, again, we just ask that as we look into your word, we're so grateful, Father, not only for the written word, but the living word. And we ask that as we as we look into the, the various passages of Scripture, that you would rightly divide it to our hearts and bring us understanding. And uh, Lord, we just want to pray for every couple this morning and every family that is represented here today. That we would um, live our lives in such a way that it would bring honor and glory to your name. In your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. This morning we want to, like I mentioned, focus our attention on the parental vision as it relates to our families. There's so much that encompasses this subject that it's, it's almost impossible to, well, it is impossible to share it in one message. And uh, just several weeks ago, I Keith, Brother Keith shared a message that was entitled Positive Reminders uh, for Relating to Growing Children. And unfortunately, we weren't here that morning when he preached, but I did, uh, I did go back and listen to it online. And uh, and uh, it was it was very good. I really really enjoyed that message. And if you have not listened to it, if you weren't here and you haven't listened to it, I would urge you to do so. Uh, the message was solid. It was practical, and uh, it was laced with biblical principles that really uh, were well well uh, all wrapped up in, into some very good instruction. And so. Uh, I don't want to, to beat a dead horse, as it were, but uh, the angle coming from this morning uh, about the parent-child relationship I think is significantly different from the angle that Keith came from, and so I don't think there's going to be a lot of crossover. So as I was looking at the, at the, uh, just at the whole concept of the parent-child relationship and the focus that a parent should have and by the way I'm using the relationship of parents and children but honestly these principles apply to any relationship Um, and so as I as I was looking at that I was thinking well there there needs to be a why 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 is it important why is it important to strengthen families why is this of uh, significance and why is it important? And so as I, as, I, uh, as I asked myself that question, I thought, well, maybe it would be good if we were to establish the why in order to have uh, a better understanding of the process of getting there. I was in a conversation recently, and um, the brother that I was talking to observed that in the Old Testament... The the structure in the Old Testament uh, revolves uh, around the family structure in many ways. Families sort of seem to be the predominant structure in the Old Testament. And just to help you think through this a little bit, think about the words and the phrases that we read about in the Old Testament. Words like patriarch. Uh, The father of, the son of, uh, the lineage of, the tribe of. Uh, We talk about A beginning C at B and B beginning C and on like that. Uh, The children of Israel, the house of, it oftentimes refers to. We know that in the Jewish culture they lived in the communal uh, households. Um, In the Jewish culture, tracking genealogy was meticulously recorded. And, um, and, and that was very important. Marriage, we see that in husband and wife in many instances. Uh, the arrangement of marriages, young ladies, by the fathers. How would you like that? And, um, but we do see parental involvement in that way. So I think you would agree with me that in a lot of ways, the structure of the Old Testament revolved around the family setting. However, a shift took place in the New Testament, in the very first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, uh, to, to, to make that transition briefly, it talked about the genealogy of Jesus, and again, it was meticulously recorded there, uh, on the genealogy of Jesus, but only four chapters into the book of Matthew, we re- Jesus makes a pivotal, uh, a pivotal statement, uh, and the statement is found in chapter 4, uh, where he says in verse seven, From that point forth, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from that point forward, the family structure took second seat. What took precedence? I'm asking you the question. I'd like to have a response from you. What took precedence over the family? Yes. Following Jesus, Jesus, which, which break that down a little bit more. The kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven revolves around the church. And, and, and bear with me. I'll, I, want to, I want to really uh, uh, talk about this because I think this is very impor- an important concept to understand. Everything in the New Testament revolves around Jesus Christ and his bride. I'm suggesting that the centrality of Jesus teaching his parables, his ministry, his healing ministry, his death, his resurrection, his character, the essence of who Jesus was, and even the epistles, the writings in the epistles, all revolve around the structure of the marriage of of Christ to his bride. The family structure in the Old Testament simply pointed forward to this relationship that Christ had or has with his bride. And if this theology is correct, and and by the way, I, I strongly believe that it is, then we would conclude that the need to strengthen families must imbibe a greater energy of the church. In other words... It would be futile for us, or for me, to preach a series of messages to strengthen families, if we were if we were to make the 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 family the motif or the essence of life. Somehow we must merge the strengthening of families into something greater than the family itself. The family is not the end; it's the means. Does that make sense? Allow me to illustrate it this way. Beliefs and values about many aspects in Scripture do not relate independently of each other. In other words, they are interrelated. Take, for instance, the church and family. The very very thing that we're talking about is a good example. Our tendency... Is to weigh these values against each other, one against the other, uh, when we when we encounter these kinds of pairs. Uh, another situation that we always do this with is is with the subject of law and grace. We tend to measure the one against the other, and and that's taking the wrong approach. And we want to we want to we want to. talk about that. So I think it's important for us to get a hold of this. I don't know how many of you here uh, read the Calvary Messenger or how many get the Calvary Messenger, but in the uh, last article, uh, the December issue, um, Jason and Judy's brother-in-law, Chris Stolzfus, many of you know Chris, uh, wrote an article uh, that was entitled, um, What St. Nicholas Stosfus Teaches Us About the Kingdom Enterprise. I was like, St. Nicholas Stosfus, Santa Claus Stosfus. And uh, I do admit he grabbed my attention with that title. Well, the fact is, the title had, the, 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 the St. Nicholas had nothing to do with Santa at all. Uh, but he used a very catchy title. It was a very well-written article, and uh, how many of you read that? Oh my, only one. All right, go home and pick up your December issue and read it. It's well worth the read. Well, like I said, it really had nothing to do with Santa at all, but Chris referred to an encounter he had with a fellow Anabaptist landlord who was all bent out of shape over his inability to dislodge an Iraqi tenant who had a tough time paying her rent. Now, anyone that knows Chris realizes that he has a calling to the Muslims uh, people, the Muslim culture. In fact, they, Chris and Sylvia live in downtown Lancaster, surrounded by many Muslim people. That he started a business, um, and the sole reason for starting the business was to employ Muslim people to work there as a means of reaching them for Christ. And so, when this fellow Anabaptist, who must have had a a, a rental property in that area, started lamenting to Chris, And um, telling him that he had this tenant who wasn't paying. He was all up in the air about it. Uh, It was probably the wrong person to talk to him about. That kind of thing. Because Chris, in turn, challenged this brother to not not only look out for his own pocketbook, but to really look at the heart of the person and to care for the person to which the Landlord replied, Chris, there's a time for preaching and there's a time for business. And by the way, that was also the wrong thing to say to Chris. This brother did what, exactly what we shouldn't do. He weighed the kingdom enterprise and the earthly enterprise independently of each other rather than seeing them as a pair of beliefs that complement each other. And in so doing, he separated two biblical principles and annulled the one for the other. Now, quite some time ago, I'm gonna, I, I really don't know how long ago, uh, Brother Jake, uh, in one of his messages, introduced a model uh, called the model of first and second things. How many remember that message? Good, good, good. I'm glad at least there was a that. Good. And do you remember the concept behind the model of the first and second things? It's based on Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33, where Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Now let me just pause there and say that Jesus was not chiding the Gentiles for seeking after those things. I used to think, or I had this idea, that Jesus was sort of chiding people for seeking after those things. But Jesus was not chiding them. In fact, look at the next phrase. He says, For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He understands that we need food and that we need water and that we need raiment. We need the necessities of life. He understands that. But, but, seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things. Will be added unto you. We see here the concept or the model of the first and second things. The first things that Jesus is saying that we need to do is seek, follow, and obey God. The second things are the necessities of life. He's not negating the fact that we need the necessities. He understands that, but there's a first thing, a first principle that we need to grab a hold of first. Well, Jake, in his message, suggested that when we, when we encounter a pair of kingdom principles, we should consider that one of the beliefs is the first thing, and this holds a place of priority and focus and emphasis, However, related to this thing also includes a belief of the second thing, which should not be separated from or be independent uh, or substituted for uh, the the first thing. So if we would have a diagram, this is sort of how it would look. There's a distinction between the first thing and the second thing, yet they are not independent of each other. The first thing should provide the anchor. It should provide the context for the the second thing to manifest itself. So let's make this practical. Let's come back to our fellow Anabaptist who said that there's a time for preaching and that there's a time for business. We have two biblical principles here. We have the kingdom enterprise, and we have the earthly enterprise. As a fellow citizen of God, this landlord has an obligation. Would you agree with me that this brother has an obligation to make sure that the resources that are given to him, he does well with? Would you agree with me? absolutely. He's responsible. God has entrusted him with a business, a rental house, and he will give an account on how well he takes care of that business. So for him just to turn a blind eye to a tenant who doesn't pay rent would be wrong. He must give attention to that. But that's not the first thing there's a first thing that he needs to give priority to, and that is to represent Christ to this tenant. That's his first obligation. And unfortunately, this person didn't see it that way he saw it more as two separate entities. There's a time for preaching, and there's a time for business. He saw them as two different entities. Interestingly enough, St. Nicholas, and by the way, I think Chris probably purposely brought that word in, saint, um, to grab our attention. Thinking of St. Nicholas, we think of Santa Uh, But the reason, I mean, saint is just simply meaning that he was a follower of God. Nicholas Stolzfus uh, did not, many years ago, Nicholas Stolzfus encountered some people who did not view the kingdom enterprise and the earthly enterprise independently of each other. Back in 1744, I believe it was, there was an Amish family, that, um, that were kingdom people. They were followers of God. And they, that was first and foremost in their life. And they reached out to, to Lutheran born Nicholas Stolzfus and hired him to work on their family farm. In addition, to that they needed to move out of the area and move away from the area. <clears throat> We have record of what Nicholas Stolzfus wrote to the authorities. And listen to what he said. Um, Okay, somewhere here. I had the opportunity, and he's writing to the authorities, asking permission to marry this girl. And... um, And and here's what he he said. I had the opportunity to be among Anabaptists. I got used to them and was among them. I was instructed in their religion and convinced to remain among them. Now, later he married this girl, and along with her two children, they moved to the New World. And they settled in where else but Reading, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and, and because of one family being grounded enough, one Amish family being grounded enough to hire a Lutheran, he became the father of all the Stolzfusses that are in our congregation here this morning, and all the Anabaptist Stolzfusses in the United States. Their commitment to have Christ in vocation. Changed the destiny of all you Stolzfuzes here this morning. Christ in vocation. They did not separate it. And I use that example to point out or to illustrate, to show the importance of another pair of principles that are equally important, and that is that of church and family. Which of these two entities should take first place. I'm waiting. The church. The church. The church is the first thing. It must hold priority, yet... It should never be separated from the second thing, which is the family. In this case, our tendency is to uh, to either separate them, like our Anabaptist landlord who wanted to separate business from preaching, or to see them as as uh, as um, uh, to hold them against each other, or or probably more more uh, correct in our culture is to reverse them. And in so doing, when we place family first, we confuse the motive of why we do what we do. In other words, we have plenty of evidence in our community, and and this manifests itself in many different ways. Well, let me just pick out one way how it appears. That sometimes it appears that the greatest issue of importance is to have our married children living right next door to us. The family farm becomes many empires uh, as one family member after the other huddles around the family patriarch. And in many cases, the family farm or the homestead becomes issues of greater importance than releasing our children to follow God's call in our life. Interestingly enough, and by the way, like I said, this isn't the only way that it manifests itself. It manifests itself in many other ways. But interestingly enough, many times, these family empires are actually very dysfunctional at its core in how they relate to each other, or maybe more, perhaps more correct, how they don't relate to each other. Oftentimes, tough things, the things that need to be talked about, get ignored because it threatens the dynasty of the family and it's in that context that many horrible misuses and abuses and many dysfunctions are either, are either hid and or ignored. On the surface, the family ties looks, looks very close to be close, but we don't have to go very far uh, beyond the surface before we start to see how weak that structure truly is. On the contrary, if a parent, parents who hold the church and family in its proper context of each other will be motivated to make certain that first and foremost, their child is a lover of God. If I were to put this in a diagram, it would look like something, something like this. And by the way, this is the diagram. This is only, I'm, I'm actually, we'll be using this diagram in the next message. And this is only part of the diagram. But I'm actually showing you the, 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 the end goal. What we want to achieve is our children being lovers of God, being a friend of God. That's what we want. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the, the last point first. Okay, And then we're going to back up next time and we're going to work our way through this chart to see how it really... How do, we, how do we get to the place that our children are lovers of God? Now I want to qualify two things first uh, before I go any further. The first thing is simply that if our belief is that the church is the first things, then it would only be natural, I think, that the goal of the parent would be to have our adult children be a friend of God. The parent with this vision is going to parent differently than the one who has the goal of only surrounding himself with children living on the family farm. Would you agree with that? We're going to parent differently. There are certain processes and procedures that need to be put to place in order for us to achieve this. That doesn't just happen automatically. In fact, a child's heart, as we'll see next time, is bent away from God. The propensity for a child is to be his own God. And so this doesn't just happen. There is a process and a procedure for us to achieve this. So I wanted to give you the the goal first and then work our way through how to achieve that and how to get there. The second thing I want to say is that I am well aware that no parent can make this decision for the child. Okay, I'm very aware of that. I cannot force my child to be a lover of God. We do not enter into a relationship with God on the coattails of our parents. Each individual comes to God, is called by God, and he or she responds according to their choice. A parent cannot make that decision. I want to be very, very clear on that. I'm always uncomfortable when I hear a parent pushing their child to be baptized. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those kinds of conversations with our children. But we must be careful that we don't build a false security in the child by pushing them into a decision that they're not ready to make uh, for whatever reasons, one that is only grounded on their personal relationship with the Lord. So, I, 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 the, the, there's a fine line there. We need to talk to them about it, but we need to be careful that we don't push them into something that they're not ready for. We see it happen frequently when a ch- child is encouraged to be baptized and they are not ready to personally make that decision. They go ahead, they are baptized, they join the church when there's really not a redemptive work done in their heart, and what happens is we oftentimes see the child, after several years, losing interest in the church and more um, uh, regretfully, losing interest in God altogether. Now, having settled that, <laughs> having said that, however, in our next message. We will use scripture to show that parents wield a powerful influence on the child. You as parents have a powerful influence on the child. We don't make the decision for them, but we also don't take the errant approach that the parent is at the, at the mercy of the child's decision. I simply cannot understand parents who sit idly by while their child self-destructs and they feel helpless to do anything about it. I've heard the phrase from parents, well, there's nothing we can do about it, and that's buying into a lie that comes straight from the pit of hell. And I, I know that's a very... Strong statement, but I feel very powerful, I feel very passionately about that. That philosophy simply does not line up with the character of Christ. To expect our children to taste, touch, and to handle the things of the world is an error on the part of the parent. It's not, it's not, it does not line up with the character of Christ. So we want to work our way through this chart. I want to take you back, if you have your Bibles on the PowerPoint, I want to take you back to James chapter 2. There's a passage here that is very significant, and I'm going to break into, its, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a thought from a concept that we're not even going to talk about. The, 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 uh, the context here is on faith and works. James is wrestling with this whole idea of faith and works, and by the way, that's another pair of principles, Okay? What's the first thing on, on the faith and works? What's the first thing? Faith. Absolutely. What's, what should never be independent of faith? Works. Absolutely. Same principle. But we see a in 17 again, because again, it's really not I'm not focusing on the whole subject of faith and works. I want to pick out something that James mentions. And he picks it up from a comment that was made in the book of Chronicles by Jehoshaphat. Um, So starting in, in verse 17, it says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not, and by, here he brings in Abraham, okay, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? Now listen to the last statement that he makes here in verse 23. It says, then the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called what? A friend of God. There was a process that got Abraham to this point. I think it was James is quoting Jehoshaphat when he recognized that Abraham was a friend of God. And I just thought, you know, why wouldn't we have that same vision as parents that our children would be called a friend of God, God God-lovers, a lover of God? Let's go back in John chapter 15. This is possible because Jesus puts it out to us. John chapter 15, starting to read in verse 12. This is my commandment. No, verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12, yeah. Um, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. So God is, Jesus is inviting us to be his friend. Why should we as parents not have that same goal for our child? Not only do we want them to be God lovers and to be a friend of God, we also want to be their personal friend. There's something very inviting. And beautiful to witness a healthy adult parent child relationship that is friendship based. I'm telling you, the lie that is out there that we can just expect teens to rebel is not, it, it's a lie. There's no reason that we as parents should not have the goal to be their best friend. <laughs> Sure, we're going to have pushing and pulling and tensions. That's all healthy in a relationship. Of course, I'm not saying that it's going to be all smooth. But at the end of the day, why shouldn't we be their best friend? Now, notice that on this chart, that's a very, that priority is very low on the scale as a newborn. <laughs> and here's where I see maybe some of the mistake that parents make. Is that too early on, they try to parent as a friend instead of as a parent. See, that should be the goal at 18 years old, when the child is an adult. Don't parent as a, as a, as a friend, parent as a parent. And we'll talk about that. But the goal should be to be a friend at the end of the day. When there's not a clear parental vision, we frequently see parents make the mistake of placing the child at the core of many decisions. In other words, when parents have a blurred vision as how the family relates to the church or to the kingdom of God, they unintentionally, I'm not saying that it happens purposefully, but unintentionally they place the child on the altar of worship making a God to themselves. Think about that. I believe this is a unique challenge for parents who come from the IY generation. Uh, You have grown up, you and the IY generation, (laughs) you've grown up in a generation that is unprecedented in many ways. Never, in my knowledge, has there been a generation of people that have been given so much opportunity with so little investment. The explosion of technology has increased the level of expectation. Technology does that. Think about it. And by the way, I'm not angry at you for being in the IY generation. And I'm not trying to impose guilt on you. You had nothing to do about when you were born but you have some unique challenges. And I think one of the challenges, one of the unique challenges in your generation, parents, will be that you're going to face is to raise low-expectant children. Now let me qualify that statement when I say low-expectant children. I'm not talking about a child that has no self-worth or has no ambition or no drive. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about debunking the eye of your generation i mean if you just stop to think about how many eyes are attached to things that we use the iphone the ipad the i uh the what all was I? I had a whole list in my mind the I, the i zoom uh what else come on guys techies come on help me out the uh yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on. I think I had a list of about nine things. I can't think of them right now, but in your generation, and what happens, <clears throat> what happens then that that you have been given a lot, you as parents in the IY generation have been given a lot, and your tendency will be for you to parent with the attitude that your child deserves equal to or better things than you've experienced unless you're very intentional about putting kingdom values above family values. Parents, it is okay for Johnny and Susie to miss an hour of sleep in order not to to, to miss a church function. And in fact, you're going to create a far more stable environment for your child by incorporating habitual practices such as, ch- as regular church attendance. Now, I'm not talking about just filling a space on the pew. I think you know me well enough that you know I'm not just referring to making sure that you're here every Sunday or every Sunday evening or Wednesday evening. I'm referring to the kind of relationship with Jesus that your child not only sees but experiences in everyday life. Honestly, I can't think of any time that Glad or I stayed home from church with our children because they needed extra sleep or because we had too many things going on the other days of the week. If something needed to be cut out, it needed to happen on other days of the week. And there were times that we needed to do that. There were times that we needed to say, no, we can't do it because we've had too much going. It's time to stay at home and be a family. But don't rob the kingdom for that. Keep the priorities straight, okay? And we're going to talk more about that next time. I just want to conclude that we keep a kingdom-focused vision as parents in order to achieve this right up here. I'll close with that. And then, Keith, I'm going to let you come up and uh, make the final comments, whatever you want. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. We are so intrigued, Father, with the way that you've called us to be your friend. And I don't know if there's any parent here today that wouldn't have that desire for their children. I'm sure that every parent would desire that. And even people who are not married and are working with uh, friends and and people, co-workers, or have people that they interact with in life, that they have a desire to see them be friends of God, to be lovers of God. And Lord, help us never to separate the kingdom focus uh, over other things. Help us to stay grounded, rooted, and have a very clear direction in order to achieve what is, uh, what is most important in life. So we commit this to you, Father. We commit each, each parent, each individual who is relating with other people, Lord, to you, and ask that you would bless them with wisdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.